Hello, this is Gail and Catherine, and we're stopping by to invite you to a special online event on February 15th from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central Time. Women Over 70's Aging Reimagined Circle is featuring Rebecca Seib, the well-known podcaster, author, and activist. Rebecca will guide us in an interactive discussion using her new book as a jumping-off point. Make her story your story your guided journal to justice every day for every woman. This is a free event. To register, just send an email to info at womenover70.com or visit our website for details. We hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we welcome you to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our weekly podcast. Our signature is sharing stories of vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. Be sure to visit womenover70.com, our website, and make a donation. Join Aging Reimagined Circle and visit the Books for Women section. Invite us to conduct a workshop or speak to your organization. We share relevant clips from podcast guests and offer numerous programs to enrich women's lives. And today we are honored to be talking with Frances Poppy Northcutt, age 78, from Houston, Texas. Poppy is a true pioneer. She began her career in 1965 as a computerist, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, for an aerospace contractor to work on NASA's new Apollo program. Stationed at Houston in Mission Control, Poppy and her team designed the return to Earth trajectory that the Apollo 8 crew took from the moon back to the Earth. As the first female engineer, Poppy also worked on Apollo missions 10, 11, 12, and 13. And after the space program was cut back, Poppy earned her law degree, practicing as a criminal defense lawyer and an advocate for civil rights. Now in semi-retirement, Poppy works and volunteers for several organizations in Houston advocating for abortion rights. She describes herself as a full-time women's rights activist, a mission that began nearly 40 years ago. So welcome, Poppy Northcutt, to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. So, uh, you know, since the, the 50th anniversary of Apollo, I know you've been called on to tell your your part of the story many times over. And what would you like to highlight for our listeners? Well, with regard to uh, the work on Apollo, many, you know, your listeners will have experienced many of the things that I experienced uh, in terms of the discrimination at the time. If you recall, we, we did not have any women astronauts at that time. We didn't have women astronauts until much later, uh, not in Apollo at all, but, but until we began to have uh, the shuttle and ISIS and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, also a lack of women in technical roles on the ground. And I had the peculiar distinction of becoming the first woman in mission control. I had no idea at the time that I was going to be that first woman. I knew that women were scarce, but I didn't know that there were none at all over in mission control. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. But going to work in the aerospace industry right out of college uh, was a you know a quick course in sex discrimination. Mm-hmm. At that time, we didn't have women's studies programs like they do now. Uh, so I I really knew nothing about the state of the law with regard to women. I, I knew there was a lot of stereotyping, but I, I didn't fully understand the extent of discrimination. Mm. What, what did you major in in college? I majored in mathematics. Mathematics. So I was, you know, thinking that uh, you were a pioneer in the the whole STEM movement that is so um, prevalent today. How how did that come to be your uh, area of emphasis, mathematics? And then what uh, what even influenced you to to apply for working in the space program? Well, a lot of it was happenstance. In terms of majoring in mathematics, I scored very, you know, I scored well in mathematics. And and studying mathematics was not terribly non-traditional for women. I mean, you know, we had women math teachers, and that was usually the expectation for women at that time is that they would become school teachers. Mm -hmm. And I more or less, I pretty much thought I might end up doing that. Uh, But also the use of high-speed computers was just beginning, really. And uh, I uh, took a computer programming course in college. I didn't really specialize in computer programming, but, uh, you know, I was sort of interested in that. I knew that was an emerging field. But a lot of it was, uh, you know, just that I... I scored real well in mathematics. I had a high aptitude for it in terms of why I majored in it. And, you know, the expectation for women, I mean, y'all are of the same general age. So, I mean, you know what the expectations were for women Mm -hmm. that went to college at the time. We were, you know, expected, really, we were there to get an MRS degree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And some of us did. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, and, you know, if you got a, you know, if you had a college degree, the general expectation uh, was that, you know, if you, you would might work until you got married or had your first child or whatever. And, you know, with a college degree, you might be a nurse or a, a school teacher or an executive secretary. Uh, but it was really more of a backup. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, uh, you know, marrying and, and uh, you know, in case something happened to your husband, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so tell us a little. Of, oh, go ahead, please. Well, I said in terms of in terms of going to work in the aerospace industry, I didn't really have any particular expectation. I got out of school. I, you know, needed a job and I, you know, just started applying and uh, uh, I interviewed at a contractor for NASA. And then the, the job title that I started out itself is, you know, very uh, gender specific, computress. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a gendered computer. And uh, I, I thought that was a very odd uh, thing. I'd never heard of such. But uh, we were a kind of tech aid. We did a lot of number crunching in that job. It was stereotypically female. and 
if you've seen the movie Hidden Figures, that's mm-hmm. a job title that has quite a history behind it. It actually goes back at least into World War II when mm-hmm. women were used to uh, do uh, uh, a lot of the mathematical calculations that were involved in code breaking, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I had never heard of such. I thought it was very weird uh, to be a gendered computer. But that was the job. And um, it was, you know, it was stereotypically female. Uh, I sort of broke the mold because I was promoted a year later and made a member of the technical staff, which is what what the guys were, okay? Uh, the guys that had uh, technical degrees were members of the tech, uh-huh. were classified as members of the technical staff. Okay. And is, and is that where you really began to experience the discrimination is when you moved into well, that? No, really. I mean, the, the, the discrimination was the process of getting there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because at the time, uh, well, we had stereotypically male jobs and female jobs. So I was hired into a stereotypically female job at that company. Uh, you know, even the, advertising in newspapers was uh, sex segregated male wanted female wanted mm. uh, and then in that job i discovered uh, something called wage hour laws that were also discriminatory we had them all over the united states every they were done at the state level but i think every state had them uh, they had little variations among them, but basically they were limitations on women uh, mm-hmm. more than on men. In Texas, it was a wage hour law that said, um, and, and this was about getting overtime, is that you were, if you were a woman, an employer was, you know, was not supposed to work you more than nine hours a day, 54 hours a week. Mm. And that was a rule that applied to women, okay? Mm. Now, it was considered protective legislation, okay? Mm -hmm. They were protecting uh, us from being overworked, except, of course, that they didn't protect us from having two jobs. I mean, we could work for two different employers, (laughs) you know, more than 54 hours a week. What it really protected us from was getting a lot of overtime, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and I was in a working in a field where we were doing a lot of overtime work because we were trying to meet President Kennedy's goal of landing a, a man on the moon. So, you know, I was having to, you know, I was I was not paid. Uh, you know, couldn't be paid for all the hours that a man could be paid. Mm-hmm. Now, I did not um, follow the rules. Uh, my boss would come by and tell me, you know, we can't pay you if you stay. I mean, you know, you need to leave, whatever. And I just ignored it and stayed and worked. Because one of the things I realized was that it wasn't just about the pay that that law was really damaging women. I I sort of knew instinctively 
that there was that the real damage was much broader than that because what what it did was devalue women as employees in general because if you were an employer okay who had crunch work okay and many businesses do they have time periods where they have real heavy need i mean who are you going to value more are you going to value mm-hmm. the guy that can stay there and work 60 70 hours a week or are you going to value this woman who's going to leave at 54 hours mm-hmm. and and that's going to affect as i said how you value them I mean, what their base salary is, it's going to affect whether you consider them for for promotion. It's Mm -hmm. going to affect when it comes layoff time. If there's a layoff time, who are you going to lay off? Okay. Um, So to me, the real impact of that was much more far reaching than, Mm -hmm. oh, I, you know, I didn't get all the overtime hours that somebody else would get. It really had to do with promotion and value to the company, uh, which is why I just, you know, the other people that were in my job position, they left at 54 hours. Mm -hmm. I'm the one who got promoted. Uh Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's a big part of the reason because my peers, um, when I talk about my peers, I'm talking about the guys that I worked with, not the women, but the guys Mm -hmm. that I worked with, they saw me as one of them because I was working the same way they were working. Mm-hmm. You just weren't getting paid for all that extra time. I just wasn't getting paid for the extra time, but I was working and I was part, I was fully part of the team. If mm-hmm. I had been somebody who left, I'm now part mm-hmm. of the team the way they yeah. were. Yeah. Were you aware at the time of how historic this, your work was going to be? Did you really feel no. this larger vision of President Kennedy and others? Well, I certainly knew that going to the moon was a huge, you know, was a huge <laughs> endeavor. I mean, how could you not know that that was a huge <laughs> endeavor and was was historic? So I, in that sense, yes, everybody was aware of it. I mean, was I aware that I was going to be considered historic myself? No, uh, that never occurred to me. But the work itself, yes, everybody knew that what we were working on was really uh, a gigantic leap in terms of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, incredible. So when when people have come to you now during the you know the fiftieth anniversary of Apollo, they must see you as a historic figure in that era. What do they what do they um, what do they ask you about? What are they interested in knowing about? Well, a lot of times, um, you know, it's it's women and they're interested in knowing about the barriers that women faced. Mm-hmm. And many of the barriers are really the same. Uh, there's been some progress, but a lot of the barriers are still present. Uh, you know, the, the assumption about what women can and cannot do, the assumption about, you know, what we're good at, what we're not good at. Uh, you know, some assumptions about, oh, well, you know, She's going to leave. She's going to, you know, have children and not work anymore or, mm-hmm. you know, not, not mm-hmm. prioritize the work. So, you know, women today that are in these technical jobs still face these kinds of problems. And they're very interested in hearing just the history of, uh, you know, what the discrimination was at the time. Mm-hmm. And we, as I said, we still have a lot of it, okay, in terms of pay. 
mm-hmm. when I was finally promoted, uh, it took about three extra months for them to promote me. Uh, the operations manager, who was the top guy in Houston, uh, had told me after I'd been there six months that he expected to promote me in another six months. Mm. And but he didn't. But that did not happen on time. And the reason it didn't happen is it later turned out. I, I found out when he did, and you know, tell me, yeah, we've got it through, was because the pay disparity was so great. He had to go through layer after layer mm. after layer of the corporation to approve this promotion because of the pay disparity. Mm. And he said it would have been easier to have fired me and rehired me. Oh, oh my. Because wow. he could have done that without all of that, you know, hierarchy. So was he a manager for you, Francis? Well, I suppose you, I, I didn't think of him as a mentor. Of course, women didn't have mentors at that time. Uh, I didn't have some close personal relationship with him. No. Uh, but I mean, you know, he knew I was working hard. I mean, everybody there knew I was working hard, but uh, you know, he, he was just a very fair minded guy. And I think also it became an ego trip, kind of an ego thing with him that, you know, it irritated him that he didn't have the power to do what he wanted to do. Hmm. (laughs) I think that was a big part of why he fought so much. Okay. Interesting. And when that that promotion went through, did you, were you earning the same as the men at that point? No, he had, he made a compromise. He was apologizing to me as he told me about all this because he still could not get me to the level that he wanted to get me at, that he thought that I should be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he said, you know, I had to do this compromise. I mean, this is the best I could do. Okay, <laughs> just to get you at the bottom of this pay category. Wow. Oh. But he okay. tried. Yeah. <laughs> he tried. He fought for me, which was good. <laughs> Lots of women would not have somebody who, whether out of concern for the, the employee or out of their own ego, uh, would fight for them. Yeah. Uh, but what he said was, you know, I, what I'll do is I will, you know, I'm going to give you the maximum allotted pay increase twice a year and you know to try to close the gap Uh Mm -hmm. so I mean he was committed to trying to do the right thing Uh, but you know one of the things that you know this problem about women uh, you know in pay is if you start at a lower level Mm -hmm. you never close the gap right right you know ever still happening and that's still happening. And that's why, you know, we still need equal pay laws. We need, we need transparency and pay. Uh, you, know, pe- you know, companies should not be basing the current pay on what your past pay was because mm-hmm. you may have been discriminated in your past job. And, you know, and it's not just the pay packet that you walk home with on, you know, on Friday or Thursday or whatever day mm-hmm. you get paid. That also fills up your retirement benefits and, you know, your pension That's right. in the long run. And the social security you get. Social mm-hmm. security, all of that. Yes. Uh, and you never close the gap. 
Right. So Francis or Poppy, uh, what, um, I know that the space program was cut back at some point, and then you went to law school and worked as a criminal defense lawyer. Why, why law school? Why go that on that path? Well, you know, I became, you know, as I said, increasingly aware of this discrimination that women were experiencing. And I was actually very fortunate. Even though I was discriminated against, mm-hmm. I was in a much better position than most women were much better, including being in a position because I had visibility of being able to speak out without being afraid of speaking out. Mm. Um, So I had become involved in the women's rights movement in the second wave of feminism. Uh, I was a member of NOW. I was on the National Board of Directors of NOW and just increasingly was aware of the legal barriers that women faced as well as the opportunities that were there to be challenging the law Mm -hmm. uh, to improve legally the status of women. So, you know, I decided, uh, you know, as the space program was winding down in terms of, uh, you know, going to Mars, going to to the moon, things like that, I decided to, uh, you know, go to law school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that you've, you devoted a considerable, um, expertise and energy to working um, for abortion as an advocate for abortion rights. Can you tell us, tell us about that work. And I know, especially about your work on behalf of young, um, young pregnant girls. Well, you know, the national organization for women way, way back. uh, in I think 1969 or 68, I mean, they came out in favor of uh, legalizing abortion. So, you know, as as an activist and now early on, I was uh, interested in in, uh, working on expanding those opportunities, you know, reproductive rights in general. Mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade passed, you know, came out of the Supreme Court and, uh, you know, we, we continued to have uh, demonstrations at clinics against uh, women having the right to abortion. So at various times, I would uh, be involved in doing clinic defense, for example, helping women get access to clinics. But in Texas in 19, hmm, late 1990s, I can't remember now whether it was 97 or 98, somewhere in there, uh, Texas passed uh, what was called a judicial bypass law. Uh, there had been various states at around that time that were trying to increasingly restrict women's access to abortion. Mm-hmm. There, you know, some states had passed laws saying, oh, well, you have to have your husband's consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, other states had passed laws saying, you, you know, you couldn't, be, you had to be 18 to consent. You had to do this or whatever. You know, they were passing these restrictions. And uh, the, the Supreme Court had a decision that basically said that it was a constitutional right. Uh, you couldn't require spousal consent, but you could, you could put some limitation on minors. Okay, but minors still had a constitutional right to abortion 
if they could demonstrate that they were mature enough and new enough to make an intelligent decision, or if they uh, were in a situation where uh, they were likely to be abused, it was not in their best interest to inform a parent or legal guardian. And in the wake of that decision, uh, a lot of states passed these judicial bypass laws. Uh, in fact, I think about half of the states currently have these judicial bypass laws oh. requiring um, that, that if a minor wants to get an abortion without involving a parent or legal guardian, they have to go to court and get a, uh, a sign-off by a judge. Oh. So, so when that bypass statute passed in Texas, uh, I was practicing criminal law at the time. I had been invited by uh, Planned Parenthood to be on a, a list of referral lawyers that they would give out if they had minors show up at the clinic wanting to have an abortion without involving their parents. And actually, I had told them, no, I wouldn't be on the list uh, when I was first asked. And the reason uh, I told them that is because I was concerned. I feel very strongly about the issue. I had a friend from college who almost died from an illegal abortion. Mm -hmm. And it's a very personal thing to me because of that. And I was concerned that I would be too emotionally involved and not mm -hmm. be objective enough. And that would not be beneficial for either me or the girl uh, if I um, got too involved in it emotionally. Well, the odd thing is that the very first case that was filed in Harris County, which is the county where Houston is, landed in a criminal district court because in Harris County, they can, these bypass cases can land in any of our courts. Mm. And I got a call on that first case from the judge wanting to appoint me to represent the girl. Mm. And he wanted to know if I knew about this statute. It, it was the first day it was in effect. Mm. And I said, actually, I do judge. I have kept up with it. And uh, he said he wanted to appoint me. And I started to say no. But as I was thinking about saying no, it occurred to me, if I say no, who's he going to appoint? <laughs> and I kept thinking of who he might appoint. And I thought, I don't, I mean, you know, I'm not real thrilled with the, the other people he might appoint if he doesn't appoint me. I mean, you know, because <laughs> I knew who he appointed to things. So uh, I guilt tripped myself into accepting the appointment. Uh, and after that, then I was the only person who had handled one of those. So the next time someone walked in the door, they called me again. Mm -hmm. And are you still doing that? Is that part of I still, still do this? Mm -hmm. I've been doing judicial bypasses for twenty something years, oh, yes. uh, representing these pregnant teenage girls who are in positions where they cannot talk to their parents, or often they're in a position where they have no functioning parental unit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're true orphans; both parents are dead. I mean, I've had girls that you know both parents were killed in an automobile accident. And uh, in many cases, you know, if you're if you're not rich or affluent and you become an orphan, 
You go live with granny or an aunt or whatever. They don't go through and get legal guardianship. Mm. The family just steps in, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, what that means is that granny can't sign in Texas for you to have an abortion if she doesn't have paperwork from a judge saying that she's the legal guardian. Mm. She may be raising her, okay? But uh, those girls have to go to court as well. Uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of girls that they, you know, have a parent, but they don't have a functioning parent. Mm -hmm. um, the parent may be in the Texas Department of Corrections, also known as prison. Uh, maybe the parent is a drug addict and, you know, who knows where they are. Um, you know, they just are off somewhere, but completely unreliable. Uh, and then, of course, some girls are in situations where they have abusive parents. Or some girls know that they would be kicked out if they told their parent. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of different things. Uh, in Houston, we you know we have a lot of people here from other countries, uh, refugees in many instances. And I've represented a number of refugee girls, um, some from Africa, for example, from war torn countries, mm -hmm. some from Central America. Who are fleeing, you know, gangs down there? They have no parent that's in this country, mm -hmm. uh, and and with you know, so there's no one who can sign for them. Yeah, so it sounds like you're committed to continuing this work. Very much so. Mm -hmm. it, it's very difficult right now because uh, Texas passed this notorious SB four, right, uh, which makes it. Uh, basically impossible uh, for most women to obtain a legal abortion in this state, uh, regardless of their age, uh, because most of them don't even know that they're pregnant until after the time that they've allotted mm -hmm. has expired. Right. So, you know, I have, uh, I haven't seen very many girls since September 1. And there's, uh, is there a workaround there? there? Are women going to other states? Women are going to other states. But the problem is that if you're a teenage girl mm -hmm. and you're trying to hide something like this from your parents, yeah, you can't exactly be flying off to another state. It's not a matter of money, okay? Not for them. Uh, we can get the money to get them to another location. But... Um, they just can't travel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, so the, the hardest hit by SBA are the teenage girls and also the, the girls and women that are from the border area who do not have uh, paperwork, okay? Mm -hmm. Because they have to worry that they may be picked up by the Border Patrol or whatever. They can't get on an airplane uh, or they might end up deported. Where does that leave you then in your work? Are, are you now advocating to try to get the law changed? Or what, is, what does this mean for you and your advocacy? Well, I mean, certainly I want the law changed. And there's, there's lawsuits going on to do that. I'm not, uh, not directly involved in those lawsuits. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the, the big thing that really needs to happen is we... We need to change our state leadership 
Mm -hmm. uh, the people that pass this. So I'm very active. I'm a volunteer deputy voter registrar. I'm, I'm uh, an election judge in my area. And uh, I try to get people registered to vote and turn them out to vote. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there's also possible federal legislation. There's the Women's uh, Health Protection Act that's already passed the House uh, that would codify the rights under Roe v. Wade, uh, but it's stalled in the Senate, as mm -hmm. is, you know, voting rights legislation and a lot of other yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, very critical time, for sure. In the, the couple of minutes that we have left, um, we, we like, you're in your late 70s and wondering if you, how you think about your own aging. Do you think about, about aging? Um, or is there something that you would like to, uh, to tell younger women? Well, the main thing I would tell younger women is to, uh, you know, get involved, uh, uh, get civically engaged because, um, you know, the government affects a lot of things that affect your life. And, you know, if you don't, if you're not there representing yourself, uh, you're, you're going to be on the menu instead of making being a decision maker right. uh i don't sit around and think a lot about and get you know about aging obviously i am uh you know sometimes i you know i have friends that are sick and that you know that's troubling you see increasingly you lose friends mm -hmm. uh but i i was over having my hair cut the other day um uh, and my hairdresser is about the same age i am and he was lamenting uh, his loss of friends. And I said, well, Donna, you need to go make, make new friends. <laughs> and and he, he just doesn't see himself making new friends. But, you know, one of the things that I do is because I'm active, I do make new friends. Mm -hmm. I have friends of all ages because I'm out there, um, you know, working politically, you know, engaged in uh, civic activities mm -hmm. and uh you know so i i think you need to have friends of all ages not just uh, sit around and watch 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 them uh, die off <laughs> well said <laughs> yes sad as it is well well the other thing is you know you need to to be an interesting per you know to be to have people interested in you, you have to be mm -hmm. an interesting person and do yes. things. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate you and um, just your, your being a historic figure and all of the work that you do on behalf of women and, and young women. Um, thank you so much. Pleasure yeah. to be here. <laughs> thank you, Bobby. And listeners, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review wherever you listen. Also, visit our website, womenover70.com, and easily access all of our episodes. Become a member in the Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined Circle and enjoy programming beyond the podcast. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined. <laughs>